Now, what employee do you like more? The one when you say, hey, this is your fault that says, yes, boss, it was my fault. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Or the guy that says, no, it wasn't my fault. It was your fault. Or it was that guy's fault. Or it was the other guy's yeah. fault. Of course, you want the person to work for you that's going to take ownership of the problems and fix them. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Brace for Impact. You and I are a lot alike. We're busy and sometimes we get stuck and we need tools to help us get unstuck. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the Unstuck app. And you can go back and listen to episode one to hear why. But today I'm even more pumped because the Unstuck team has just launched an online platform called Life Courses to help us make a change in our lives by first helping us understand what's holding us back and then helping design a personalized action plan for moving forward. I just started the first Life Course myself and it's a high impact, awesome experience, something you and I can do together. I know what you're saying, I'm too busy and still Life Courses is designed specifically for busy people like you and me, and you're worth it, I'm worth it. So head over to unstuck.com forward slash impact and sign up today. I'd love to hear back from you. Send me your stories via email at info at theimpactentrepreneur.net or the Impact Entrepreneur Show Facebook page. And of course, we will link to all of this awesomeness in the show notes. All right, folks, we are switching things up a bit on the Impact Entrepreneur Show, and we're going to be releasing a series of themed interviews beginning with this episode. And this is the first in a four-part series on leadership where we will feature a cross-section of experts from a whole variety of industries And my goal is to help you become a better leader, a better entrepreneur, so you can have a greater impact in the lives of others. And we're going to kick things off with Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink is a decorated retired Navy SEAL officer, author of the book Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win, and co-founder of Echelon Front, where he is a leadership instructor, speaker, and executive coach. Jocko spent 20 years in the U.S. Navy SEAL teams, starting as an enlisted SEAL and rising through the ranks to become a SEAL officer. As commander of SEAL Team 3's task unit bruiser during the Battle of Ramadi, he orchestrated SEAL operations that helped the Ready 1st Brigade of the U.S. Army's 1st Armored Division bring stability to the violent, war-torn city. Task Unit Bruiser became the most highly decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. Jocko returned from Iraq to serve as an officer in charge of training for all West Coast SEAL teams. There, he spearheaded the development of leadership training and personally instructed and mentored the next generation of SEAL leaders 
who have continued to perform with great success on the battlefield. During his career, Jocko was awarded the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and numerous other personal and unit awards. In 2010, Jocko retired from the Navy and launched Echelon Front, where he teaches the leadership principles he learned on the battlefield to help others lead and win. Clients include individuals, teams, companies, and organizations across a wide range of industries and fields. Jocko shares a lot of information with us, including why he doesn't think we're using the superpowers we already have, and how ego can be one of the greatest dangers to leading effectively, and so much more. Bust out your pens and paper, don't be a podcast junkie, and brace for impact. Jocko Willink, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, where we take time to have conversations with entrepreneurs such as yourself who are using their product, service, or platform to impact the lives of others or have a game-changing effect in the world. Thanks for having me on. So I always kick off the, the conversation with the superpower question, and this is a, a purposeful question. So if you could pick any superpower, what would it be, and how can we apply the essence of that superpower in our entrepreneurial journeys. So you're asking if I could pick a superpower, what would I pick? Yes, you who already possess many superpowers. If you could pick any other superpower, what would it be? You know, honestly, I think you're right. I think that we as human beings have so many powerful gifts. We can think, we can move, we can create ideas. I don't even think I'm utilizing the powers that we have as humans right now to my maximum capability. So I don't think I deserve any other powers at this point in time. And I would tend to think that most people aren't maximizing the potential that they have with the gifts that you have as being a human with a brain. Yeah. So I don't think I need any more superpowers at this point. I think I'd probably, uh, I think I'd probably waste them. Like I'm probably wasting some of the powers that we have right now. So the, the untapped powers that we, that we possess and how, how are, how can we tap that? If you, if you are you possess these superpowers that you, you say you're not even using to your full potential, so to speak, how, how, what can Jocko do to, to tap those untapped resources? Work harder. Good do, answer. Do more. Yeah. That's what we can do. Okay. That's what I can do. Uh, early in the book, you and Leif write about the importance of the right method of mentorship. And mentorship is is something I talk about a lot on my podcast. And you mentioned that the wrong method of mentorship can actually create a gap between knowledge and, and understanding. And so what were the gaps that you guys noticed as leaders? How did you go about fixing the gap? And then maybe can you tell us a story about a mentor who impacted you either uh, as an entrepreneur or as a SEAL? Well, you know, people should always be looking to try and learn from from different people. And I think from my perspective, I always had, you know, a dozen mentors on top of which I wasn't taking all of everything from one individual because most individuals have some really good qualities and some pretty bad ones to go along with it, myself included. So I'm not sitting here saying I'm going to emulate this person because they're perfect, but I would look at someone and say, wow, this part of their game is really good. And look at the way people react to their leadership or look at the way people look at the way this person understands or communicates. 
And when I would see that, I'd say, okay, I would like to take that. But then again, the same person might do something else not well, or I deserve observe something that they did that they could do better. And so I don't think you need to find this perfect mentor. And, and I think what you have to do is you have to look at the world and try and take what you can from different people so that you can develop yourself in the best possible way, because it can be, it can be challenging. And, and you know, when I showed up to the SEAL teams, I didn't have one singular mentor. I, like I said, I found a bunch of different guys that I took various parts of their personality or their tactics, techniques, and procedures and said, yeah, I'm going to emulate that right there. And there's also guys that I looked at and said, wow, that person's not good at their job. I'm not going to be like that. So I think it's important just to, to observe people and see what you can take from them and what you don't want to take from them. Right. So let's kind of break that down a little bit further specifically on the bridging the gap between knowledge and understanding. And you kind of alluded to it. There's a lot of great mentors out there, people that you can emulate, emulate people that you otherwise don't want to emulate. What are steps that you as a SEAL and even as an entrepreneur and a business owner today use with your, with yourself, with your team, with your clients to bridge that gap between knowledge and actual understanding where they can go out and execute? You know, that's something that for me, I realized early on. I think I realized this when I was a kid, that the way my mind works, I I actually do need to understand something in order to make sense of it. And so if I don't understand something, I will just continue to ask questions and tear something apart until I understand what's making it work or how it's working. And then once I have that, the concept never goes away. And it's the same thing like when I teach even even teaching jujitsu classes, I, I'm a, I, I train a lot of mixed martial arts and I, and I teach jujitsu and I'm always teaching, hey, here's the move, but here's what you're trying to make happen so that people fully understand it. And when you're working with businesses and with working with leaders, you can't just tell them here is the problem and here is the solution because every problem is different, right? right? I mean, there's going to be nuances in everything. And so you have to take these principles that you learn and you have to apply those principles, but you have to apply them not as a mechanic, but as an artist, right? right. There's going to be nuance when you're dealing with, I mean, you, I don't know you, but your personality is going to be different from the, the next person that I meet. But regardless, I don't care if it's your twin brother, right. you, your personalities are going to be different and I'm going to have to know how to apply these leadership principles to each of you individually in order to get the best results out of you for our team. That's really, really, really powerful. And I have two kind of follow-up questions on that. Number one is, is it enough to simply begin with the end in mind to use the Stephen Covey kind of quote in order to get to understanding? And number two, how do you adapt to different personalities on the fly? I I mean, as a SEAL, you probably had to do that on the regular and you still have to do it on the regular as a, as an entrepreneur and business owner, but is it enough to begin with the end in mind in order to to get understanding. Well, there's a, there's a great quote about commander's intent, which is, you know, when you're trying to get people to do something, when you're trying to get people to accomplish a mission, commander's intent is, is the overall statement of why they're doing what they're doing, what the end state you're trying to reach, what the purpose is, what the goals are, what the strategy, how this fulfills the strategies, all these ideas of why are wrapped up into a term called commander's intent. And the Germans who kind of began 
the the notion of maneuver warfare where you actually want your leaders to have decentralized command and be out there thinking on the battlefield. Well, one of the things that was written by them that is is a quote from a general, I can't remember his name right now, but it was that this commander's intent, this idea of commander's intent shouldn't be just a blurb on the end of a long, you know, detailed briefing of, of how the mission's supposed to go. This idea of commander's intent should actually replace the entire briefing. And so all I need to tell you is this is what I want you to do. This is why I want you to do it. This is the intent I have at the end state. And I'm going to let you do however you want to get there. I don't care. And that's, so I would say that, yes, knowing what, knowing where you're heading and what the end state you're looking for and what the intent of the operation or the mission is, it should certainly be enough. You also, I mean, obviously you have to put some parameters around that because if I tell you, Hey, I want you to sell a bunch of these items and you're a salesperson. Well, I don't want you to go out and do it. You know, be unethical about it. I don't want you to sell things that won't really do what you say. So I'm going to put parameters around it, but I, you know, I'm going to say, Hey, here's what I want you to do. And here's the parameters you got to work with and go make it happen. I don't care how you do it. Right. No, that that's, that's powerful. And I, I don't think it's something that is taught enough in entrepreneurial circles today. I think it's people dance around that idea and that concept of of the commander's intent, as you, as you said it, and it would make things way easier and things would get done much faster, more efficiently and effectively if we as leaders simply stated the commander's intent. That's a very powerful concept. Absolutely. Now, going back to the other thing, adapting to personalities, like you said, if I had a twin brother, he and I would have completely different personalities. So that's the same in our entrepreneurial journeys. How can we, how, how do we adapt? What tools do you use to adapt to, to different personalities on the fly? Tool number one, listen. No tool number two. <laughs> well, tool number two is what you're going to take out of your box after you've listened. But so many people in so many situations, they never break out tool number one. Tool number one is the one that tells you what are the other 14 tools that you're going to need to use here. What do those other tools look like? I mean, it's talking how you're going to talk to the person. Are you going to let them take the lead? Are you going to lead them? Are you going to clearly define things? Are you going to let them run with it? Are you going to just give them that commander's intent and let them run? Or are you going to give them very detailed instructions because they've got that kind of personality? Are you going to set specific goals for them that are very short term so they can move through that problem and, and get satisfaction along the way? Or are you just going to set that long term goal? So all these little things are the nuances of how you're going to lead people, but you won't understand which one of those tools to apply if you don't do step number one and use tool number yeah. one, which is to listen. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and uh, it's so true because I had another guest on several weeks ago, a guy named Dave Kirpin, who wrote the book, The Art of People. Uh, have you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? It's, it's was written in 19... I have not. It's, it's, you know, classic Dale Carnegie type yep. thing. I, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Anyway, he, he, wrote a, he wrote a modernized version called The Art of People, and one of the chapters was Shut Up and Listen. So, that, you know, it's, it's music. It's good advice. <laughs> um, speaking of commander's intent, what I want my listeners to get from every guest is I want every guest to effectively reach into their chest pull out their beating heart and breathe some inspiration and greatness on it or stir it up or help them uncover it and then put it back in their chest and, and, you know, send them on their way. So maybe 
will will transition into extreme ownership because I I believe that that is a concept that is a game changer and it's your platform and and I, it's not talked about enough in the business world. So you know, regardless of whether some someone is a new or an experienced entrepreneur, why is extreme ownership the number one characteristic of a high performance individual or or team? The reason that extreme ownership is the most important characteristic is because if you don't take ownership of what's happening in your world, then how can you change any of it? Mm -hmm. Because if it's not your fault that things aren't going well, then it's someone else's fault. How can you, how can you change it? How can you help your situation? Where if you face the reality that what's going on in your world actually is your fault. And if anyone can fix it, it's you then you can actually take action. So that's, it's, it's very, it's a very simple concept. And, and as we talk about in the book, it's simple, but not easy right? because it's, it can be very challenging for people to look at a problem that they're having or that their team's having and say, okay, this is actually my fault. And there's always other things in the world to blame. You can blame other people. You can blame your competitors. You can blame the market. You can blame the weather. You can blame the battlefield. There's all kinds of things you can blame when something goes wrong, but there's only one you can fix and that's you. And so what you have to do is say, oh, this isn't going the way I wanted it to go. Here's all the elements that, that play into that. And here's what I am going to do to fix them. You know, I love the way that you said that. And I love how you break that down in the in the book into a story from your time in Ramadi, the principle, and then how you apply it in the business world. And one of the, one of my favorite stories, and it's probably you've probably heard this, you know, uh, hundreds of times at this point, but it's about that that boat crew and these two boat crews. I can't remember if it was. When you were, you were an instructor, I believe. It was actually, that was Leif. Was Leif, that Leif? Leif Babin, who's the guy that co-wrote the book from, with me. And he was one of my teammates at SEAL Team 3. He was one of the platoon commanders that worked for me in the Battle of Ramadi. He was the Charlie platoon commander. And he was, when we got back from that deployment, he took over, or he didn't take over, but he was a, a basic underwater demolition. So it's the BUDS SEAL school where, you, where the basic SEAL training takes place. Yeah. And he was an instructor there. Yeah. And there were those two boat crews. One team was constantly, you know, coming in last and getting penalized and all. And then one team was constantly, consistently in first place. And you were trying to figure out the, what was going on. And all you did was switch the leaders. Maybe you could fill in the rest of the story. Yeah. So they just, uh, again, this was Leif that was doing this. And, and he had a senior enlisted guy that said, Hey, let's switch out the leaders and see what happens. And Leif, by his own admission, he said, you know, I didn't think it would make that much of a difference. And sure enough, this boat crew that was coming in last on every way race and the boat crew that was coming in first on every race, they switched the, just the leaders, no one else, just the exact same boat crew. So the boat crew's six or seven guys. They just switched the leaders and, and the next race, literally the next race, the boat crew that had lost every race up until that point won. And the boat crew that had been winning every race actually came in like second or third, which, which also showed that first of all, leadership is the most important thing. And that's one of the things that, that Leif and I talk about all the time is leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. And when we talk about leadership, we're not just talking about the person with the rank in the highest position. We're talking about every level of leadership. And, and that's proof right there. The fact that the boat crew that had lost its good leader 
and the good leader had been replaced with a subpar leader, it didn't matter because the boat crew still stepped up and knew how to win. And those guys took leadership on their own hands and led and, and came in second. Meanwhile, the boat crew that had been losing that now got a good leader that stepped in and took control and said, Hey guys, this is what we need to do to win. Let's do it. They were able to, to start winning. And so that's again, why we say leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. And I, I love a, a, another story you tell in the book. I believe it was, uh, or a mission didn't go as planned and you had to come in and, and debrief everybody. Plus you had some senior leadership that was there. And I can only imagine that everybody, the guys that were out trying to execute that mission were coming in there with their already having processed what happened or what went wrong and how, how they played their role in it. And they were ready to take ownership of it themselves. And yet when it, when the, when it came time to debrief that mission, you stepped up and said, it's entirely my fault. But then I, I think in the story and not in the story, in the book, those team members kind of fought back with you a little bit and tried to, tried to own their own role in that. So it kind of elevated the whole extreme ownership concept to a new level in that respect. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, first of all, when you say we were on a mission that, that went bad, it went awful. It was horrible. You know, we had a fratricide. And if you don't know what that is, it's when friendly forces kill friendly forces. And in this case, it was my group of SEALs with some army guys and some Iraqi soldiers with them were engaged by a unit of Iraqi soldiers. And, and my guys killed one of the Iraqi soldiers and wounded a couple more of the Iraqi soldiers. And one of my guys got wounded as well, luckily. Luckily, it wasn't bad, but it could have been. He could have been killed easily. They all could have been killed. So it, was a, it wasn't just it was a mission that went bad. It was a, a mission that was a nightmare. And to your point, yes, I, I took ownership of it because I was a senior guy. I was the, I, and I was the responsible guy on the battlefield, and I needed to be. And, I, and sure, I could have placed blame on other people, but to maintain my integrity as a leader and as a man— I need to say, no, this is, this is all my fault. And that's exactly what I did. But to your point, the entire task unit, which is what I was in command of, which is two SEAL platoons and a bunch of support personnel, the entire task unit had that attitude and that attitude had spread through, through everyone. And so the guys on the, on that, that were in the field that, that day and had done things that they thought were wrong, they were also stepping up and taking ownership. So, so that's something that people, that's a, that's a mistake that people make when they, when they hear about extreme ownership, they say, well, if I just take, if I'm the boss and I take ownership of everything and everyone's going to point their finger, fingers at me and blame me for everything. Right. And that's just absolutely not true. What actually happens is when you take ownership, then everybody takes ownership. Just like if I looked at you and I said, Hey, I mean, if I, if I was in charge of you for something and I said, Hey, you screwed this up, you're a disaster. What, what would your reaction be? Would you, what's, what's your reaction? If I'm, if I know specifically why I'm coming in to to talk to you and why I'm a disaster, I'll have a prepared response on what, what went well, what went wrong and how we could fix it and move forward. That, that's, that's a gentle statement. What you said. <laughs> um, let me tell you what really happens okay. <laughs> when, when people, when I blame you for something, 
people get defensive. Sure. Everybody gets defensive. And then what do they do when they get defensive? Well, they do kind of what you just said. They start putting up defenses. Well, this is what went wrong. I'm going to put together this report. You know, but what people start to do is they start to blame other people. Yeah. And now we end up in a situation where you're blaming everybody else and everyone's blaming everyone and, and no one's taking ownership. And if no one takes ownership, no one solves the problem. So that's what we're trying to avoid. And with when you take ownership of things as the leader, that spreads throughout the chain of command. And you know, it's not just the leader. It goes down the chain of command as well. It goes up and down and through the chain of command. So sometimes I get asked, Hey, you know, I want to, I want my company to, or I want my boss to embrace extreme ownership, but he won't. What should I do? I tell him it's very easy. Take ownership yourself. Your boss comes in and says, Hey, this is your fault. And they're not taking any ownership of it. Awesome. You know what I say? Yes, it is my fault, boss. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. I got this. I I take responsibility. Now, what employee do you like more? The one when you say, hey, this is your fault that says, yes, boss, it was my fault. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Or the guy that says, no, it wasn't my fault. It was your fault. Or it was that guy's fault. Or it was the other guy's yeah. fault. Of course, you want the person to work for you that's going to take ownership of the problems and fix them. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. It's, it is such, as you said, a simple concept, but so challenging to implement and execute and, or maintain as we see in today's business environment, political environment, uh, especially, is this something the concept of extreme ownership that is, is really taught to, to in the, in seal training, uh, or, or is this something that you really developed and nurtured in, in your task force? Yeah, it's not taught. It's something that I watched leaders. No one ever said it to me. No one ever said own it. No, no one ever said anything like that to me. But what I got to do is I got very lucky in the fact that my, I spent 20 years in the SEAL teams working with a bunch of guys who had every different type of leadership capability, every level of leadership capability. I worked for incredible leaders. I worked for horrible leaders. I trained great leaders and I trained horrible leaders. And over time, I was able to identify, oh, I see what this guy does. And I see what that guy does. This guy is a great leader that's doing a great job. That team is succeeding in their mission. That guy who doesn't take ownership, who passes the buck, who blames other people, their whole unit is doing poorly. And then when I got in the civilian sector and started working with companies and individuals in the civilian sector, I saw the exact same thing. So no, no one ever, I mean, no one ever told me, hey, number one thing is to to take ownership of things. No one ever told me that, but I saw enough examples through my time in the military and then in the civilian sector to, to, to recognize this as the key component in a successful individual or, or a successful team. How do you develop a horrible leader or someone that other people on the team say that that leader is just never going to change and we have to deal with him or her and, and navigate around that? How, how does Jocko uh, approach that. I do exactly what you just said. I mean, my goal with every 
leader that I ever worked for, whether they were horrible or whether they were awesome, my goal was always the same, to develop a relationship with them where they trusted me and they let me do what I want. And I didn't, and so I had to use, you know, when you're working with a guy that's an egomaniac, you got to stroke his ego, you got to build him up, you got to keep him informed, you got to do all these things in order to build that relationship and that trust. And then when it's a guy that's a great leader, they, they're out of the gate. They're working with you. You're learning from them. And I'm just trying to build trust with both of them. So I'm going to take ownership of that relationship I have with my, with my immediate superior and develop a great relationship with them. And I suppose that's, that, that's the only thing you can do. I mean, cause you can, at that point, you can only take ownership of your role. You can't own what he or she is doing. Well, you actually, believe it or not, you can. I mean, your boss, you're in most situations, you, whatever your boss is trying to make happen, you're the one that's actually doing it. So your boss tells you he wants something done. Okay. Let's make it happen the best way, the right way. And you can have a massive amount of influence over it. So I have, I'm going to take ownership when my boss is, is, has a vision. I'm going to take ownership and make it happen. And I'm going to build trust. And when they tell me to do something that doesn't make sense, I'm going to have the relationship where I can say, hey, boss, this doesn't make sense right here. And there are times where you actually do have to say negative. We are not going to do that. And I, you know, if, uh, on my podcast, I talk um, sometimes about situations in military scenarios where people have either, yes, they've stopped, you know, a commander from going in a bad direction or they didn't. And there's many military maxims that say, if something happens on a military operation and it's not good, even if you were ordered to do it, you're culpable for what you caused. You, you talk a lot about ego in, in, uh, in extreme ownership. And in our conversation, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Do you have an example in, in either as a SEAL or as a, as a consultant through Echelon Front where you've seen ego really be a game changer either for better or for worse? I see that on a daily basis. Ego, and it can go in both directions. I mean, the reason that people want to do well and win is most of the time driven by ego. I mean, occasionally you might get somebody that really wants to do well for some wholesome reason, and that's great. But normally that wholesome reason is a secondary to their ego, and they want to win, they want to do well, they want to be the number one. I, I, I'm driven by ego, of course. That's that's just the way it is. The, and that's great. So I'm not a person that, that says no ego, get rid of your ego, because if you get rid of your ego, then you don't care what, how you perform. Right. And I want you to care how you perform. I want to care how I perform. So the, the, where it goes sideways is where the ego becomes so big that it no longer thinks it can do any better. It no longer can you be corrected? No longer can you be coached? No longer can you change? No longer can you evolve because your ego thinks that you're already there. And so you've got to keep your ego in check and constantly tell yourself you're not there. I think I, uh, I think I might know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is what is the you know top one or two or three tools that we can use to check our ego? Keep an open mind is, is number one. I mean, you know, obviously listening to people, but keeping an open mind as to as to what you're hearing, what you're seeing, not believing your own hype, and making sure that you constantly assess, do, a, do an honest self-assessment. And the way that you're able to do an honest self-assessment is by detaching from 
from yourself. You know, you have to detach from your situation and look at yourself from an exterior point of view and say, wait, wait, wait a second, what is that conversation looking right, like right now that I'm having with this person? What does it look like from their side? And how many times have I said, I, me, I, me in the last two paragraphs? So that's what you need to watch out for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a challenging thing because you, you're managing your ego during that whole time. There's this book that ju- just came out uh, by a guy named Ryan, Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. And he also wrote another great book. I'm not sure if you've read it called The Obstacle is the Way. Uh, and uh, But ego is something that each of us, especially as you're developing and growing a, a business or a practice, is something that an obstacle that we're going to have to encounter every day. One of my favorite uh, stories in I keep saying story, but it's not a story. It's it's factuals uh, that that is in the book is when Leif is out uh, with one with with a platoon, I guess a couple guys, and they get kind of in a tricky situation after they took down a terrorist, and uh, they they hadn't necessarily brought him back uh, for interrogation yet, but there's an enemy force maneuvering on them, and he's could rapidly lose control of the situation. But he he heard your voice, and he said, your, your voice in his mind was, relax, look around, make a call, which I can also hear your voice saying that now since I've listened to your podcast for, you know, for months. But how do you advise clients now in, in the midst of competition and customers and product malfunctions and you know, things gone awry? How do you advise them to stop, look around, make a call, relax. Yeah. That, that, that story, that, that phrase actually came from a different situation where we were doing some training and we were using Humvees, five or six Humvees at a time patrolling through the desert. This is in a training scenario when they have targets out there and the targets pop up and we start shooting at the, at the targets. And then we maneuver either towards the targets to assault them or away from the targets to break the contact. And one of the young lieutenants who was in charge of his squad, which was meant he was in charge of all four or five of these vehicles. He's every time the shooting starts, he's locking up and freezing and not doing anything. And so we came back from one of these runs and I took a Sharpie magic marker and on the window, literally in front of his face of the Humvee, I wrote, here's what I want you to do. The next time the shooting starts, number one, relax. Number two, look around. Number three, make a call. Just follow those steps and you're going to be all right. So I, we go out on the next run and I'm sitting behind him in the Humvee and the shooting starts, the targets pop up, the shooting starts. And I, and I look at him and cause you can't hear anything once the, once the machine guns are firing, you can't hear anything, but I'm just looking over his shoulder from the, from the rear passenger seat. And I see him take a deep breath and then exhale so I go, okay, he just relaxed and I see him turning his head and looking around and seeing where the other vehicles are and assessing the situation. Then he gets on his radio and presses the, the mic, keys the mic, and then makes a call. And that's, that's all it is. And what you have to do in these situations, I already use this word today and I use it a lot is detach. You got to detach yourself from the emotion and the chaos and the mayhem so that you can step back, breathe, do a real assessment and make decisions based on the realities of the situation not tainted by emotions and chaos. Hmm. It almost gives you the ability to have, when you detach, like an out of 
body or mind experience, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can see like a 300. You can see, and you don't have to go, you know, that's another thing that you don't have to, you don't have to go that far above the chaos to be able to decipher it. You, if you step back and you breathe and you look around, most of the time, the problem is the, the solution to the problem is staring you right in the face and it's pretty easy to see. But when you're in the chaos and you're mentally and emotionally engaged and embedded in it, you won't see the solution. Right. And it's just a, it, it's just a second. It's just a, it is it's literally just a, a second. Yeah. Now, sometimes, sometimes when you're starting out, it might take a little bit longer. And what the, the longest, the hardest part of this is to learn to recognize when you have been brought into the downward spiral of mayhem because you don't see it. You don't, you, it doesn't, it, it's very easy for people to miss that. It's very easy just to get enveloped in the scenario and, and that's what people miss when you don't, when you can detach from it, when you can, when you can sense that you're being enveloped in the scenario and in the situation and in the emotion and in the chaos, when you sense that the detachment part is actually pretty easy. Cause then all you have to do is go, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. I'm getting emotional here. Hold on. Take a breath. Step back. Let me look around and make a call. One of my favorite quotes in the book is the right decision. Even when all seems lost can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But let, let's say we have a situation where the entrepreneur, the leader of the team is they're up against a wall and they fail to make that right decision. So how does the will to win, which is another phrase you've used, not necessarily, not in your book or in your podcast, but in, in a, his, a, a documentary I watched on, uh, on the history channel that you were involved in, how does the will to win aid in recovering from a situation like that, in essence, failure? Well, the, the biggest piece of that is what's going to trip you up when you fail is when your ego doesn't allow you to say, you know what, this was my fault. Here's what I need to do to fix it. It's that when you can't do that, you won't make the necessary adjustments, the will to win. And that's why the will to win, the will to win isn't a short term thing. The will to win is a deep seated desire for a long-term end state. And you've got to recognize that along the way, you're going to have wins and you're going to have losses. You're going to take scars. You're going to have rough days. You're going to fail. You're going to fail again. And you're going to fail again. And what you need to do after each one of those is say, okay, here's what I did wrong. Assess it, detach from it so you can get an honest assessment of it and of yourself, and then continue to drive forward towards that long-term victory. Yeah, the, the, the quote that you said in the, hist- in the History Channel documentary, which was about the story about Mark Lee, powerful story, was that the will to win, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, requires the will to die. And in, in, when we're in the business sense or application of that concept, you're, you're talking about it, but we really, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail again. And the dying part of that is, is letting go of your ego along the way. You do have to, I mean, the the thing that you're talking about from the history channel documentary, which is called live to tell. And it it is the story of, of Mark Lee, who was the first seal killed in Iraq, who was a incredible, incredible warrior and an incredible person. And it's the story about him, but the, the opening of, of the documentary, I'm talking about what it takes to win. And what it takes to win in a, in a military situation is you have to have the will 
to kill is the first thing I say. Yeah, that's right. Because the first thing you've got to do is you've got to recognize that in these scenarios, in war, people are going to die. You are going to kill people. Your team is going to kill people. And part of that, and the, the most, the more horrifying part of that is that some of the people that die are going to be innocent people. It's a war. When you drop a bomb somewhere, it doesn't just kill the two people that you aimed to kill. It's going to kill four more people that were innocent bystanders. When there's a machine gun fight in the street in the city there, and there are innocent people around, some of those innocent people may die. And so this is a very difficult thing. This is horrible. This is why people say war is hell because it is and innocent people will die in America does an incredible job and goes through incredible lengths to prevent civilian casualties. I'm telling you this. I know this for a fact. They, America does an incredible job of mitigating that risk, but it will happen. And you have to accept and understand that. And then the, the other side is that you have to be willing to die as well. Because people on your side, American kids are going to get killed. Dads, sons, brothers, and these days, moms and sisters that are out there fighting on the battlefield are going to die. And you have to recognize that that's going to happen and you have to accept it before you start the war. So when you realize that, that you say, okay, these are the, these are the worst case scenarios on either side. And we have to accept that those are the risks involved. We have to recognize that what we are doing, we believe in what we are doing. So therefore, when we meet those obstacles, we don't shy away from them, but we drive forward and continue with the fight so that we can win because it's happened. It happens to America where we start seeing dead women and children, which no one likes to see. And you start seeing American kids coming home in body bags or coming home, missing arms, missing legs, missing all, all kinds of horrendous injuries. And it can be very, it's a test of will. And so my request, you know, is always let's make sure that we test the will prior to coming face to face with the, the horrors of war. And which comes through your training, obviously, right? I mean, the, the rigorous training where you're, testing people and, and weeding out those that don't have the will. Yeah. But the training, I mean, if you think about it, if I said to you, Hey, okay, I want you I'm gonna take you down to the beach here in Southern California for seal training. I'm going to make you do a bunch of pushups. I'm going to make you get cold and I'm going to make you stay awake for long periods of time. Right. That's real hard. And, but that compared to, okay, here's what I'm going to do with you. Now I'm going to put you in the lead turret of a Humvee, meaning you're in the, in the first Humvee and you're going to be standing up above the, the roof of the Humvee in a, in a machine gun turret, totally exposed to enemy sniper fire, totally exposed to IED blasts. You on our way out the gate, we're going to drive by a, a vehicle graveyard where there's scores of vehicles piled up that have been blown up and everyone inside them killed. And I'm going to say, okay, now you're going to take, we're going to roll out and you're going to put yourself in the same situation that got these, all these guys killed. Mm -hmm. That's a totally different that's story. That's a totally different game. So the, the training, that's why I always 
not to minimize the training, but you got to minimize the training in comparison to what you actually want these, these young American kids to do, which is go out and risk their lives on a daily basis. Right. And, and the resolute belief, the absolute clear understanding of what the, the worst possible outcome could be and testing willpower, those concepts transfer into the, into corporate America, into, into the boardroom just as well as they do on the battlefield. They absolutely do. One of the really powerful tools that you lay out in extreme ownership is the leader's checklist. It's a very powerful tool. How do you use this with your fellow SEALs? How did you use it with your fellow SEALs? And how can entrepreneurs adapt this leadership checklist in their specific businesses? Well, the good thing about a checklist is it ensures that you've thought through everything. And a really easy, simple example I give of a, of a physical checklist is in Iraq, I had two cots. You know, one was to sleep on, a cot to sleep on. The other cot was all my gear laid out that I'm going to need on an operation. So when I put my gear on for an operation, the cot would be empty. And if there was something that still on the cot, then I had to make a conscious choice. Okay. I don't need that piece of gear tonight. So it's staying on the cot. And that way you never forget anything, never forget anything on an operation because you've gone through that mental checklist and a physical checklist to make sure that you have everything that you're going to need. So when you're trying to plan for something, you want to develop the same type of checklist to make sure that you've fought through everything. That doesn't mean every planning is going to be the same. doesn't mean every plan is going to be the same. There's always going to be differences and changes, but you want to make sure that you've thought through every possibility that you can thoroughly before you roll out an operation. And that's why checklists are important. Working with your, your corporate clients, do you, do you come in there and see that they have nothing like this organized on a frequent basis? It, it, it's a variety. Some people have really thorough, some people have, some people have formulated checklists to the point where they've eliminated or at least inhibited the desire for the people on the ground to think. So that can actually be problematic. So you get, you get elements where people are so committed and driven by a checklist or a procedure that they don't think about it. And that is not healthy either. So I always say, you know, the first step in a, in a, in a standard operating procedure should be, does this make sense? (laughs) Does this fit the current scenario? Because even the best standard operating procedure only covers, you know, 90%. Maybe it's 99%. Maybe it's 80%. Maybe it's 70%. We had some standard operating procedures in the SEAL teams that worked 50% of the time. 50% of the time they worked, and that's, that's not bad. But the other 50% of the time, okay, we got we to gotta think. And so I am always cautious with checklists and with standard operating procedures, which are outstanding and you need. But you've got to make sure that they're not so draconian that you inhibit your troopers and your subordinate leadership's ability and desire to think through problems. Yeah. You, they have to adapt, be adaptable. My, it reminds me, I, as I was telling you before we started, my dad's a former army ranger, long range reconnaissance patrol dude. And, uh, now he's a business owner and behind his desk, he has a, uh, a picture. It's a riff off of the whole, the whole keep calm and carry on mm-hmm. thing. 
but it's it's he was an artillery commander and it's got this battery of artillery and it just says keep calm and adjust fire and you, you have to be able, in business in life you have to have those the ability to detach pause think look at what your checklist is but be able to adapt and move on to a new target if, if it moves yeah clearly your dad who was a vietnam veteran and thank him for his service from me i will he clearly learned many of the same things that I learned and that keep calm and adjust fire is the exact same thing as relax, look around, make a call. It's the exact same thing as prioritize and execute. It's the exact same thing as detach. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. He put it in a different way. Yeah. So yeah, there's no doubt that those are some of the skills that are very important when you're in the military and your dad as a, as a successful businessman has applied the same techniques to the business world. Yeah. He is definitely one of my, uh, uh, most important mentors in, in, as, as an entrepreneur myself. What do you mean when you say in the book, a leader has nothing to prove, but everything to prove? Well, that's from this entire idea around the dichotomy of leadership, where when you're a leader, there's going to be opposing forces pulling you in multiple different directions and, and actually pulling you in opposite directions. And the, and the hard thing to deal with that is that those different directions, actually both of them are correct. And so this last example here, being a leader with nothing to prove and yet with everything to prove, I actually originally aimed that at the young, insecure junior SEAL officers that felt the need to prove that they were in charge. Their insecure minds felt the need to prove to everyone around them that they were the ones in charge. And so what would they do? They would micromanage. They would tell everyone exactly what they want them to do. They would give such specific direction. They would straighten guys out. There was, it was their plan, no one else's plan. And you cannot be successful in, a, in, a, in an, any environment when you're behaving like that. If you're, if you're able to control every single aspect of a situation, then you're not handling enough situations. Then, then your world is, is too small. And you need to step up and grow. So when you'd see guys do this, so, so what happens to them? Cause these, they couldn't, these situations are too big for them to control, but they're trying to control them all and they lose control because you can't control 16 guys as a platoon commander. You can't control them all in a firefight. It's not going to happen. You have to have subordinate leadership that steps up, steps up and takes charge. So what these guys would do in an effort to prove that they were in charge of everything is they would micromanage and say, no, do everything like the way I want. And then they would lose respect from the guys. They would lose trust from the guys because the guys are thinking, oh, he doesn't trust me because he's telling me exactly what to do. He doesn't trust me to get this done on my own. So you're destroying the relationship or at least hurting the relationship, hurting the trust and being ineffective as a leader. So I would say, don't try and prove that that, that you're in charge. You are in charge. De facto, you're in charge. Try and gain trust. Try and build relationships. Try and try and decentralize the command here and let your subordinate leaders lead. It will make your job easier. So don't try and prove everything through being a dictatorial leader. You don't want to be that. At the same time, the dichotomy is that you as a leader are constantly trying to prove the most important thing. And that is that you will make the right decisions at the right time for the good of the team, that they will be successful in the mission and keep the guys alive and destroy the enemy. That's what you're trying to prove. And that isn't proved by 
micromanaging. It's not proved by giving minute directions on things that do not matter. There's so many things going on in a SEAL platoon or a SEAL task unit or in a business that do not matter. But if you as the leader want to make them matter, they're going to drive you crazy. And while they're driving you crazy, they're going to drive your team crazy. Because what your team wants to do is get out there and get it done. Let them go. Let them make it happen and concentrate on more important things like proving to your troops that you will make the right decisions at the right time to win. What do you, Jocko, want to be remembered for? I'm not concerned about being remembered. Why? Just because you've you've done what you've done, you've you've you just aren't concerned. Yeah, I'm I'm not concerned about being remembered. I'm not. Doesn't matter to me. Okay, fair enough. That's awesome. Uh, any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Work hard, be humble. How can our listeners connect with you and interact with you? Well, we wrote a book. Like I said, Leif Babin and I wrote a book that's called Extreme Ownership. You can buy that book and read it. You can listen to it on audiobook. Narrated by you and Leif? Leif and I narrated, okay, the, cool. narrated the book. You can listen to a podcast that I do, which is called Jocko Podcast, which is about war and leadership and discipline and success and failure and life. It's a great podcast. Thank you. And you can connect with us on the interwebs through Twitter is my primary social media outlet. I am at Jocko Willink. I am also on Facebook at Jocko Willink or however they do the backslash something. Yeah. If you search, you will find Jocko Willink. And I am also on Instagram. Uh, so you can find me on there okay. as well. At Jocko Willink on Instagram yes. as well. And we'll link to all of those things in the show notes. Jocko, thank you above all for your service and to our country and leadership of uh, your fellow brothers and um, have the utmost respect for everything that you've done and are doing and look forward to continuing to stay in touch. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Jocko, for your service, for joining us on the show today, and for continuing to help us all become better leaders. We will link to all the awesome resources you shared in our show notes. The awesome thing about what Jocko talked about is that it is immediately actionable, literally every single part. And the moment you begin to take action, you will see a huge boost in discipline and freedom. Now, first things first, go out and buy the book, Extreme Ownership. It's phenomenal. You won't be disappointed. If you were not able to take notes or you missed something, we've got you covered. Visit theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 25 for all the key points and highlights of our conversation. Do you want to have an impact in the lives of others? If the answer is yes, then you're listening to the right show. A few ways you can begin to have an impact are number one, share this episode with someone you care about. Number two, email me or hit me up on Facebook or Twitter to let me know what you've taken away from the conversations we've had today. And number three, head to iTunes and write a review. This takes about two minutes and it does a huge thing for us. It bumps us up in the charts, which exposes us to more people. Last but not least, thank you to Cody and the podcast master's team for helping me produce a quality show. Until next time, go make an impact.